Veritas uh, is going to be having a new class I wanted to tell you about just briefly. I know sometimes we miss things at the beginning of service or, or maybe you came in late today. But we're starting a new Sunday school hour from 8.30 to 9.15 on Sundays. And so you may have found a flyer on your seat. wanted to let you know about an upcoming class series that is beginning next week called The Five Points. That will be a six-class series with a break on February 18th. We would like you to sign up in person or online so that we can have a head count, make sure that we've got enough materials printed. Uh, Veritas Church is a Reformed Baptist church. Here's what that means in a nutshell. We are a Baptist church, which means we are Baptist in our view of baptism. So we believe that believers and believers alone should be baptized as opposed to some churches that would also baptize the children or infants of believers. But we are also Baptist in terms of our church polity, our ecclesiology, our view of church government, the importance and independence and even authority of a local church. So we are Baptist, but we are also reformed. Here's what that means. We as a church, especially our leaders, our pastors, we agree with the theology that was recovered during the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. We agree with that theology. We believe that they got it right when they broke from the Roman Catholic Church. Well, in the 1600s, there was quite the controversy, and that good theology was under attack. And so in the year 1618, a group of, a large group of Christian leaders gathered together to formally and officially reaffirm crucial truths of the gospel. And as far as I'm concerned, no one has done a better job of articulating those biblical truths of the gospel ever since. Well, one of the things that they affirmed, maybe the most significant thing that they affirmed, was in the form of five published points that were in response to what they saw as heresy threatening the gospel. So that is why this class is called the five points. Five points that are unfortunately not as well known today as they were hundreds of years ago. Uh, not only not as well known, but some people intimidated by them or misunderstanding them or feeling threatened by them. So we offer this class as a way of maybe clearing up any misunderstanding there be and to promote these truths which so many of us here would say are some of the truths we hold closest to our hearts and have been used by God over and over and over again to get us through this difficult life. So that class starts next week. Um, you can sign up here in person this morning. You can also sign up online. The flyer tells you where to go to do that. But if you would like to attend, we want to make sure we've got enough material. Please sign up this week. 
In the first century, there was a small town called Philippi in eastern Macedonia, which today is Greece. And in this little town was a church, a group of Christians who were very dear to the Apostle Paul's heart because he was the first missionary to Philippi. He was the first one to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to a people that had never heard it before. Many of them believed this gospel, and so a church was built, and they are the Philippians, to whom Paul writes this letter that we have been studying. So he wrote this letter in about the year 60 AD while he was imprisoned in Rome, either awaiting execution or release. And he wrote this letter for at least a couple of reasons that we have discovered. First, he wrote to reassure the Philippians who were surely worried about him that despite him being in prison and facing a possible death sentence, he and his ministry were thriving. And second, he wrote to exhort the Philippians, which means that there was some trouble and some troublemakers in Philippi. And Paul had some practical instructions that he wanted to give them. In the beginning of chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul warned the Philippians to watch out for a group called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of professing Christians who taught that true Christianity insisted not only on faith in Jesus Christ, but also in strict obedience to the Old Testament ceremonial law, including circumcision. And Paul said about that group of Judaizers in chapter 3, verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Strong words. Now, in our text today, Paul is warning us about another group. They were also professing Christians. But their teaching, like the Judaizers, it was contrary to Scripture. They had swung the pendulum to the other extreme. Rather than insisting on works that were necessary for salvation, this group, known as antinomians, insisted that no works were necessary for a Christian. Rather, they insisted that a Christian, since after all they had been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, could live however they like. This, of course, is not true. We know Paul disagreed with this because he just said in verse 14 how important work was for a Christian. He said, I press on. We looked at this last week toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul would never say live however you like. He was committed to the hard work, which is the Christian life this morning. I'd like us to consider Paul's warning together. As we live the Christian life, here's what we'll find out. As we live the Christian life, it is imperative we find and follow good examples. It is imperative that you and I find and follow good examples. And it is also imperative 
that we identify and avoid bad examples. Which is what Paul is going to say. It is equally important to finding and following good examples that we as Christians identify and even avoid bad examples which are not always obvious. They don't walk around with a pitchfork. They are not always obvious. This is why Paul has to make the point. So that we can learn as Christians how to identify and avoid bad examples. So we need the Apostle Paul's help for our church's sake so that we can identify and avoid bad examples. Those whom Paul says walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, we need your help understanding your word, your will. We need help applying your word, your will. We know that our minds will be dark and our hearts will be cold without you. So please activate your Holy Spirit in us and give us light and heat. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Please open your Bibles, if you have not already, to Philippians chapter 3. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find it on page 637. Let me read the text in its entirety one more time before we begin. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. This is the Word of God. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Amen. It is imperative for any Christian who wants to grow to find and follow good examples. This is what Paul is saying in verse 17. Twice he exhorts them. First, he calls the Philippians to imitate him as others are already doing. Brothers, Paul says, join. That means others are already doing this. Join in imitating me. And then second, Paul exhorts the Philippians to not only imitate him, but to also imitate others. Brothers, Paul says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In other words, find and follow good examples. Now, we can't find and follow Paul. You know this. Paul is dead. 
We cannot keep eyes on Paul. But we can keep our eyes on those who walk according to the example of Paul. But here's our challenge. We must find these examples. We need to find Christians who walk according to the example of Paul. Which means we need to get to know Paul and we need to get to know other Christians. We need to read the Bible. Specifically Paul's words who talks more about the Christian life than any other author so that we know what we're looking for in others. And then we need to find those others. Do you know Paul? Do you know the Apostle Paul? Or let me say that in another way that I know Paul would be okay with. Do you know the Word of God? Not all of it, not perfectly, but do you know the Word more today than you did a year ago? Do you know God's Word today better than you did a month ago? Do you know the kind of life that God wants you to live? Do you understand holiness and faithfulness? Do you know what you are looking for in a good example? And then, do you know others? Are you a part of a church? That is where you will find them. This is where you go to find these Good examples. You go to church. Do you know the people in your church? Maybe you're a part of a church. Maybe you're a part of this church. But you don't really know the people in your church. I'm not saying all of them. I'm not saying perfectly. But do you know them more than you did a year ago? Do you know them more than you did a month ago? Again, here is the exhortation from Paul. Find and follow good examples. Here's the way he says it. Keep your eyes on them. Be on the lookout for them. Search for them. Once you find them, don't let them out of your sight. Watch them. Keep your eyes on them. As Christians, we need real life examples of what it looks like to be a Christian. We need real life examples to know what it looks like to be a Christian. We need examples of people Applying the gospel in real life. You understand God's word. You understand the gospel. You understand what his word has to say about you and about God and about others and about life. But what does it actually look like to live that Christian life? What does it actually look like to apply the gospel Paul is saying we need to find 
godly examples and how does he put it? Keep our eyes on them. How do they work? How do they play? How do they run a home? How do they worship? How do they interact with people at church? How do they sing? How do they pray? How do they read their Bible? How do they lead their family? How do they play sports? How do they watch movies? How do they listen to music? How do they talk to their spouse? I'll never forget a moment when I became keenly aware that people were, for better or worse, watching me. I remember having lunch with a, a young man. He's a, he's a member of this church. And he was telling me about something that happened between me and one of my sons in front of him that had this profound impact on him. And I had no idea. In other words, I wasn't intentionally trying to set an example for him. In fact, I guess, I don't even remember, we were in a car together, all of us, and we were driving somewhere. I was having an issue with one of my children, and I actually had to pull over. Didn't just threaten to do it, actually did it. I had to pull over and say, you need to step out of the vehicle, put your hand. <laughs> it's close to that, behind your head, and I'll meet you at the back. I had to have this conversation with him. And that ended up having this significant impact on this young Christian man. How do they speak to their children? How do they parent their children? How do they rest? How do they spend their money? How do they spend their free time? How do they entertain guests? How do they worship with their family? How do they serve others? How do they sacrifice How do they share the gospel? How do they trust God? How do they grieve the loss of a loved one? How do they suffer through sickness and hardship? How do they stand for truth? How do they stand for righteousness? How do they die? Are you seriously telling me you have that all dialed in? Paul says, find And follow good examples. I have been personally blessed by God's grace for so many years to find examples that I could do my best to attach myself to and follow. I can think now of specific people, pastors, and fathers, and husbands. And any time I am around them, can you guess what I'm doing? I am asking questions. How do you do this? How do you do that? When your wife says this, what do you say? When your child says this, what do you say? When you have this decision to make, how do you do that? Well, How do you spend your mornings? How do you spend your evenings? What am I trying to do? I'm trying to find out how to live the Christian life. I understand the gospel. Thank you, God. I understand your word. But what does it mean? What does it look like to actually apply this and live it out? So we must find and follow 
good examples. Now next, that's verse 17. And here's where I want to focus this morning because this is, this is where Paul focuses. While there are Christians to find and follow, and we must find them, there are also professing Christians to identify and avoid. While there are Christians to find and follow, there are also professing Christians to identify and avoid. And in fact, in understanding what we should avoid, doesn't it? It brings clarity to what it is we're looking for in good examples that we need to follow. So look at verse 18 and 19 with me. Here is the warning in verse 18 and 19 that Paul gives after exhorting the Philippians to keep eyes on good examples. Let's read it all together. Verses 17 through 19 of chapter 3. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us for... So what follows is the reason for Paul's exhortation to follow godly examples for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. In other words, Paul is calling the Philippians and us to find and follow good examples because there are so many bad examples. This won't just happen. You can't just eeny, miny, mo this. You can't just pick somebody. The reason Paul is exhorting us to be diligent in finding and following good examples here, he says, is because there are so many bad examples. We need to know who they are. And Paul gives us plenty of information to identify them. But first, before we look at the characteristics of these bad examples, let me make three quick observations. Just three quick observations. One, keep in mind, These bad examples are professing Christians. These bad examples are professing Christians. They are in the Philippians church. They are not professing unbelievers. There would be no temptation for believers to emulate unbelievers. That's not what this is. These are men and women within the church community. And so young or new or gullible or immature or undiscerning Christians may be tempted to follow these bad examples. Second observation, there are a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Paul says many. And apparently Paul has pointed them out before. Many, Paul says, of whom I have, what did he say? Often told you. 
knowing Paul, he probably called them out by name. That's what John did in his third epistle, verses 9 through 12. Listen to what John says in verses 9 through 12 of his third letter. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. He's going to go on about this guy, but how would you like to be Diotrephes? Typically, the way this would be handled is they'd receive a letter from an apostle and then they'd read it at a gathering of the church. They'd read it like on a Sunday morning. So how would you like to be this guy in the congregation? Let me read you what John says. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. He's saying the same kind of thing Paul is. He just uses the guy's name. That's a bad example, John says. That's an evil example. And he's among you. Do not follow him. Find and follow good examples. So these bad examples are professing Christians. There are a lot of them. And third, these bad examples fill Paul with sadness. It's not as if Paul is being callous or cruel. Christians should never be callous or cruel, though they often are. Christians should not be callous or cruel. Paul is not when he warns us to identify and avoid some people. Listen again to verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Did you know you can be angry and sad about something at the same time? This makes Paul angry. This makes Paul sad. On the one hand, Paul was clearly upset. No doubt about it with imposters in the church. But on the other hand, he was sad. Paul's not making this up. He means he's actually writing this with tears in his eyes. It makes him sad to the point of tears because these professing Christians were no Christians at all. Our friends, that is the heart of Christ. That is the heart of Christ. On one page, on one page of the Gospels, we read about Jesus unleashing scathing words on the Pharisees, calling them names like snakes and vipers and whitewashed tombs. And then on another page of the Gospels, we read about Jesus privately weeping over their rebellion. He is angry with these imposters and he is sad because these professing Christians who think they are safe, they are not safe. They do not know God. So through those three observations, I hope you see what Paul is doing. He is tearfully warning the Philippians to be discerning as they find and follow good examples. 
Be discerning as you find and follow good examples. It's not as if they can just pick someone from around them to model their life after. They need to be discerning. You need to be discerning. You need to be wise. You need to use good judgment. There are examples to find and follow and there are examples to identify and avoid. Not every professing Christian is a Christian. Saying so doesn't make you so. Not every professing Christian is a Christian. For that matter, not all Christian music is Christian music. Not all Christian books are Christian books. Not all Christian movies are Christian movies. There are bad examples. There are people to avoid who actually exemplify how not to live and how not to walk. And so Christians need to be discerning when finding examples to follow. Now, because we want to be discerning, don't we? Because we want to be discerning, let's note, let's note how Paul describes these professing Christians. Here's what he says about these people. Verse 18 and 19 again. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. Paul says five things about these bad examples. Let me list them to you and then we'll look at them one at a time. Five things he says about these bad examples. Number one, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And number two, their end is destruction. Let me pause before listing Three, four, and five, and say this. This is a devastating judgment from Paul. These are professing Christians who, in actuality, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ and whose end is destruction. That is a devastating judgment. It would be like Paul looking out on our church this morning. And let's imagine, though this is probably not the case, that everyone in this room professes to be a Christian. Let's assume, just for this illustration, that everyone in this room claims to be a believer in the gospel, a follower of Jesus Christ. This would be like Paul looking out at this room and saying, Many of you actually are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ and your end will be destruction. That's a devastating judgment from Paul. In response to Paul's clear Exhortation, we want to identify and avoid these professing Christians, but we also want to make sure that we are not these professing Christians. So his clear exhortation and application here is 
watch out for, look out for, identify, avoid these bad examples. But clearly we want to make sure that we are not these bad examples. Can you imagine anything worse than thinking that you are a Christian, but you are actually an enemy of the cross headed for hell? It's a devastating judgment. Number three, as he describes them, their God is their belly. Number four, they glory in their shame. Number five, their minds are set on earthly things. We're going to take these out of order. We're going to take three, four, and five, and then one and two, because one and two, they walk as destruction-bound enemies of the cross, is a summary of three, four, and five. In other words, the way these people walk as enemies of the cross of Christ is that their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. And their minds are set on earthly things. So look at, let's look at those last three. These characteristics of these, these bad examples. These, we might call them worldly professing Christians. Number three, their God is their belly. Now some of you know exactly what that means. And some of you don't know what that means. This is a way of saying that this person is enslaved to their earthly desires. They're totally enslaved to their earthly desires. There there are things that they want from this earth that they refuse to say no to. They they give themselves to sensual indulgence, just wanting to please their bodily senses, whether it is a desire for food or drink or sex, or power, or money, their desires for the things of this world rules over them. They are searching for ultimate satisfaction in this life and in the things of this world. Their God is their belly. Whatever this body wants, This body gets one Puritan said. For the worldling, that was a word they used to describe a worldly professing Christian, a worldling for the worldling, their gold is their God for the believer. God is their gold. You see the difference. My belly's not my God. The things of this world are not my God. My earthly desires must not rule over me. Only the God of the universe rules over me. So that's the first characteristic. Their God is their belly. Number four, they glory in their shame. Now remember, as we think about these characteristics, we should be thinking about what to look for in others Bad examples of worldly professing Christians around us, near us, on the radio, on the internet, in books. And we should be willing to call it out and avoid it. But we're also 
thinking about our own hearts and where worldliness exists in us. Their God is their belly. Number four, they glory in their shame. Here's how this goes. First, you do something you should be ashamed of. You sin. You've all experienced this. You felt shame. You've done something that brings guilt. You know because of God's word written on your heart or because you've read it in God's word that you've done something that is not good. You've done something that has offended God. You, you know it is not right and you feel that guilt. And if anyone else sees or anyone else knows or the fear of someone else seeing, that's shame. These are wonderful gifts from God that are meant to point you to Christ. Meant to point you to Christ. Our tendency is to hide. Our tendency is to cover up. To be no different than our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. But that's how it goes. First, we do something we should be ashamed of. You sin, then you do it again. And again. And again. You give yourself to it. You give up the fight. Then, and this is a dark turn, rather than confessing and forsaking it, you usually, with the help of others, justify it. It's okay. It's natural. It's normal. It's okay for me. It's not sin. It's not sin in my case. It gets worse. And then with enough help from others, God forbid you glorify it. You glorify it. And what you once called evil, you now call Good. They glory in their shame. At this point, not only is sin denied, it's celebrated. Now think about the world we live in today. Most of you already are. They are rejoicing in things that should make them feel ashamed. And instead of feeling shame and turning to Christ for forgiveness and grace and strength and help, they celebrate sin. They boast in it. They are proud of it. They laugh at people who restrain themselves. They mock people who don't indulge sin. They mock people who pursue things like holiness and purity. This is far, far, far down the drain of sin. Isaiah talked about this in chapter 5, verse 20, when the Lord said through him, Woe to those, as he looked out at the world around him and the culture he lived in, 
Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They glory in their shame. They have convinced themselves that the darkness is light. They have convinced themselves that the evil is good. They have convinced themselves that the bitter is sweet. And they don't know. Number five. Their minds are set on earthly things. You hear the worldliness in this. You see, hopefully, how these go together. Colossians 3, 2 says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. They don't do that. Their minds are not in heaven. They are on the earth. These professing Christians that Paul is talking about are worldly. They do not see past this life. This is what it means to be worldly. They, they are at home in this world and their ultimate sense of belonging is in this world. Evaluate your hearts right now. Evaluate your desires right now. Your priorities. What is most important to you. If you were to write down on a piece of paper right now what is most important to you in this life. If you were to write down your goals in this life, and if you were to have an unbelieving friend write down the same list, would your list be any different? They don't see past this life, a worldly Christian. They are at home in this world. Their ultimate sense of belonging is in this world. They think like this world. They act like this world. They desire what the world desires. Their dreams are here. Their aspirations are all here. Their pride and their boast is here. Their greatest treasure is here. Their heart and desires and affections are here. Their minds are set on earthly things. They do not think about their soul. They do not think about eternity. They do not think about death. And what will happen to them after they die. That kind of talk sounds morbid to them. Martin Lloyd-Jones said they don't want to talk about death because they want to go on minding earthly things. It's like this. Don't bother me with that. I have family members that are not believers and I can't understand why they are not thinking every day about their soul and eternity. But they're not. It's not even on the radar. Their mind is set on earthly things. They don't think about death because death brings an end to all they have enjoyed here. But the Christian thinks about death as the beginning of all they will enjoy in heaven. You see why we need examples. We need examples of godly Christians so that we know how to die. Like Aunt Cheryl. Melissa Keller's aunt that Josh told us about. 
How do you die as a Christian? What does it look like to embrace death? What does it look like to leave this world with joy and anticipation? But that's a topic to be avoided by those whose minds are set on earthly things. And it is sad to Paul and should be to us. There are happy people everywhere. There are happy people all around us whose thoughts are confined to this earth. They go on with their attention on good, some good things, earthly things like keeping a home and providing for a family and loving children, but they give no mind to life beyond this. They give zero thought to heaven. And as far as they are concerned, Christ died in vain. And it's tragic. So for some, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. And in this way, back to one and two, in this way, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ and their end is destruction. In the book of Galatians and Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 and 5, which Paul also wrote, he said, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and here he thinks about the cross, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. The cross, in Paul's mind, the cross delivered Paul from this present evil evil age but for the worldly professing christian they don't want to be delivered from this present age this present age is fine and good they would say they're an enemy of the cross then in galatians chapter 6 verse 14 paul said but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our lord jesus christ by which the world has been Crucified to me and I to the world. Paul is saying that because of the cross of Christ, the world no longer has any power over him. He can take it or leave it. The world has no power over Paul. But for the worldly professing Christian, the world has power over them. They want the things of this world. They need the things of this world. And so they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. In conclusion, a Christian doesn't think this way. A Christian may be tempted to think this way. A Christian may find themselves from time to time thinking this way. But ultimately, a Christian does not want to. And at the end of the day, a Christian does not think this way. Our last two verses tell us so. Verse 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it 
we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. A Christian does not walk as an enemy of the cross. A Christian's God is God. A Christian glories in Christ. And a Christian's mind is set on things above. As Christians, we must find and follow good examples. We must identify and avoid those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. We must identify and avoid following the example of worldly professing Christians while being careful to address worldliness in our own hearts. What example are you following? And what example are you setting? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please continue to search our hearts with your word. Show us what needs to change in our thinking, in our talking, in our behavior. Show us where we could bring you more glory in our life. And then give us the help by your Holy Spirit to live in a way that is worthy of the calling that you've given us. God, for the ways that we have disregarded you and dishonored you and disobeyed you, please forgive us and hold not our sins against us. We ask that you would apply again the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and wash us perfectly clean. God, we ask that in this week to come that you would take your word and that it would do its work that it always does deeply in our hearts for our good and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.